A Tale of Two Teachers. Once upon a time, in a faraway land of learning, two tag team teachers began every class they taught with a story. When their timely tale had been told, the two teachers asked their students questions based on their splendidly spun story. These were not just any old ordinary questions. No, no. Theirs were special questions, carefully crafted questions of a custom concoction, remarkable throughout the teaching realm for their ability to ensure that students never gave the right answer, but instead always gave the wrong answer. After several simple-minded students had sampled those carefully crafted questions and contemplated how to comment on them correctly, and after they had been properly humiliated for how very wrong they always were, and after chaos and confusion had been created in the classroom, the two teachers would saddle and mount their theological white horses, superior and surpassing. Hi-ho, superior, away. Hi-ho, surpassing, away. And with Bible in hand, they came galloping to the rescue of their wretched, woefully ignorant students. And when all was said and done, the two teachers were hailed as heroes who had saved their students from the slough of theological insufficiency and despondency. Then the two teachers galloped away and lived pridefully ever after. The end. The moral of the tale. Don't let the tale of these two teachers be your teaching tale. Teaching. Teaching God's truth is at the heart of what we are called by Jesus to do. And all of us here teach in some way, in some place, whether you're teaching in the classroom or in your living room or in the boardroom or in the bedroom of your children before you put them to sleep at night. It's vital that we all seek to teach well, that we seek to teach for the glory of God and that we seek to teach for the good and for the growth of those we're teaching, all of us. We have to seek to be faithful teachers of God's truth. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return once again to Matthew 28. So I invite you to take out your Bibles and and turn to that chapter in Matthew 28 if you don't have a Bible. Uh, The passage is printed in your bulletin. And when you've found it, uh, let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. All that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that right now 
you are with us. You're with us as we read your word. You're with us as we think through your word and seek to apply it to our lives. So thank you for your presence with us. Father, what is true from you, may it be proclaimed and heard loudly. May it change our lives. May all else fall away. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Teaching, it's what Jesus did. It's mostly what Jesus did, and that's why they called him teacher. In my quick uh, search of Scripture, I found Jesus called teacher 30 different times. Now, that's significant given the fact that he's called master only six times and rabbi only 12 times, and he's rarely ever called Christ while he's alive. It appeared to me that even the name Lord came in second to the name teacher. On earth, Jesus was known as teacher. His disciples called him teacher. The crowds called him teacher. His religious enemies, who were teachers themselves, called him teacher. Very interestingly, on Easter morning, Mary is weeping by the empty tomb of of Jesus. And Jesus comes to her, and he calls her by name, and she looks up, and she recognizes him, and she exclaims, teacher, not master, not Lord, but teacher. As you look through the Gospels, you see this phrase repeated over and over. Jesus went throughout, dot, 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 teaching. He went throughout Galilee. He went throughout the villages. He went throughout the cities, teaching. He taught in the synagogues. He taught in the temple. He taught on a mountain. He taught from a boat. He taught in the wilderness. He taught in desolate places. He taught while he walked along the way. He used visual aids in his teaching, like heads of grain and loaves of bread and cups of wine. He used fig trees and burning candles and flowing water and birds of the air and lilies of the field. Teaching was vitally important to Jesus. And so he gave it his time, his attention, and his creativity. And now, here... In this great commission, Jesus passes his treasured, dear-to-his-heart teaching baton to the disciples. Here, go into all the world and teach. What a weighty responsibility Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. Thankfully, we're wrapped up in the, the first and the last alls of this commission at which we looked last week. The all power of Christ is there at the beginning and his always presence is with us. And that's good news. And the reason that's good news is that we need both his power and his presence because teaching is fraught with conflict. If we peek ahead just a little bit to Acts chapter 5, we see that these disciples actually take up this commission that Jesus gave to them and they teach. They're teaching in the temple, and they're arrested for teaching in the temple. 
And those religious leaders who had arrested them bring the disciples out and they say to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Then they beat the disciples and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But every day in the temple and from house to house, the disciples did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. See, teaching is fraught with conflict, and you know why. You know why. As we have noted over and over here at Redeemer, because we've noted, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that you can fill in this blank, or I've been a very bad teacher, so don't fail me here. Are you ready? And if you know it, say it loudly because somebody else might not know it. (laughs) Whatever God ordains, Satan, whatever God ordains, Satan, where's my white horse? Where's my white horse? Do you think that Satan wants people to learn all the commands of Jesus? Do you think he wants to obey all of them? Absolutely not. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Your enemy and my enemy has no good goal for our lives. Our enemy has no good goal for our lives. Knowing the commands of Jesus, obeying the commands of Jesus, that is the very best thing we can do with our lives on this earth. Your life will never be better. Your life will never be fuller. Your life will never flourish more than when you are taught the will and the way of Christ and then seek to obey that will and that way by the power of the Spirit of God. Teaching is vitally important, and so it's fraught with conflict. Our enemy will seek to Distract, disrupt, distort, and destroy the teaching of God's truth. And of course, Scripture tells us that our enemy also masquerades as an angel of light, and so he often attempts to co-opt the ways of God without including God in achieving those ways. Look, it's, it's difficult for anyone to deny that much of what Jesus commands is good for our lives, it's good for our society. So it won't work to try to convince people that it's not a good thing to feed the poor or not a good thing to give the homeless a home or not a good thing to, to view every human being as made in the image of God. And so what does our enemy do? He attempts to make people believe that those very good things can be accomplished without Christ. And definitely not for Christ's glory. But you can't accomplish God's ways without God. At long last, I am reading Dostoyevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. I'm a little over halfway through it. If you haven't heard of that novel, it's been acclaimed as one of the supreme achievements in literature. It said that Einstein considered it the supreme summit of all literature and that Freud called it the most magnificent novel ever written. 
Now, that's not an endorsement of Freud. It's just to point out the, the significance and the importance of this novel. Well, one of the characters in the novel, uh, he is uh, the leader and the most revered elder in the monastery. And this old elder has a crazy notion. He has the hope that with Christ's help, quote, man will find his joy only in deeds of light and mercy, and not in cruel pleasures as now, in gluttony, fornication, ostentation, boasting, and envious rivalry of one with another. Now he realizes, this old elder, even in his 1880 culture, so much for the good old days, that Christ-centered hope will be mocked. And so he says, quote, And we may ask the scornful themselves, if our hope is a dream, when will you build your edifice and order things justly by your intellect alone without Christ? If the scornful declare that it is they who advance towards unity of a truth, they have more fantastic dreams than we. They aim at justice, but denying Christ, they will end by flooding the earth with blood. Sounds very 2021, doesn't it? Is that not literally what we see more and more every day? As, as individuals and as groups who are bold enough, and I'll even say arrogant enough, to say that they even know what justice is, that they seek to achieve it apart from Christ. Who but God alone, the perfectly holy, holy, holy God, against whom every human being has sinned and continues to sin, how can anyone but he know what true justice is? And yet the world seeks justice. And they hope to both define it and achieve it without Christ. Without Christ, hate and bloodshed is the best hope we have. That's precisely the reason our enemy promotes trying to achieve the things of God without God himself. The elder continues. And he's speaking to a culture that depends on hundreds of thousands or millions of, of serfs. He says, quote, Equality is to be found only in the spiritual dignity of man. In other words, equality can only ever be found when we realize that we are created by God and made in His image. And people hope to both define and achieve Equality apart from Christ? Without Christ, hope and bloodshed is the best hope we have. And that's precisely the reason our enemy promotes trying to achieve the things of Christ without Christ himself. And then, of course, there are those things in our culture that are blatantly antithetical to the truth of God's word. That we teach. And so I say all of this to remind us that what God ordains, Satan opposes. Here in these verses, Jesus ordains, commissions, commands 
that we go into all the world and teach his truth, and so we can expect conflict, especially when we consider the meaning of this word teach that Jesus uses. Listen, this word means to tell someone what to do, to instruct them. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, tell someone what to do? Tell someone how to live? I think the, the first word that a child usually learns to say is mine. I think the first sentence that a child learns to say is either, you can't tell me what to do, or you're not the boss of me, right? I smell conflict as Jesus commissions us. Dwellers in 2021, inhabitants of a culture that denies that truth even exists, to teach his truth, to tell people what to do, to instruct them how to live. And so with this commission that's given to us by Jesus comes this question, how? How are we to teach Jesus' truth to this culture? How are we going to be victorious in the conflict that surrounds teaching? I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at just one way, one way that will help us be victorious in this conflict surrounding teaching and and enable us to do it well. And should the Lord be willing, we'll look at more ways next week. But for this week, one way, and the first way is to be compassionate. Be compassionate. Mark in his gospel tells us about the time that the disciples had just returned, interestingly enough, from a teaching tour. And so they gather back around Jesus and they tell Jesus all that they had taught. And many, many people were coming and going and they were so busy and so tired they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus said to them, come, come away by yourselves to this desolate place and rest for a while. And so Jesus and the disciples set out for that desolate place, but the crowd sees them uh, and they anticipate where they're going. So the crowd runs ahead and gets to that desolate place first. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Mark does not say that the very tired, very hungry Jesus saw the crowd and was frustrated with them, annoyed with them, so he began to teach them. Mark does not say that the very tired and the very hungry Jesus saw the crowd and was angry at them and so began to teach them many things. That's not what Peter saw. He was there and he saw the compassion of Jesus. Compassion that I believe must have struck him as oddly out of place in this moment of of great exhaustion and and great hunger, compassion that might possibly have shamed the lack of compassion that he felt. I, I don't know, but in any case, Peter was struck enough by what he saw to tell it to Mark, 
so that Mark could tell us future teachers about it in his gospel. We must be compassionate. Matthew saw the same compassion on a different occasion. He remembers this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If we defined this word compassion literally, it would mean that Jesus' heart contracted convulsively. That's what compassion literally means, for the heart to contract uh, convulsively. But, of course, Jesus' compassion is not just limited to a, to a physiological reaction. But the literal meaning of the word is very telling to us about how Jesus looked at others. His, his heart went out to them. He had pity on them. He had sympathy for them. His compassion came from knowing their reality. They were lost people. Apart from God's truth, taught the right way, their lives were a mess. Their families were a mess. Their values were mixed up. Their goals were misguided. So question, when you look at our culture that attempts to exclude Christ from it, when you look at our culture that attempts to co-op Jesus' truth without Jesus, when you look at a culture that blatantly defies Jesus' truth about life, that God knit together in His way in the womb, what do you feel most? Anger or compassion? i got to confess, I don't feel compassion nearly enough. For me, it would read, and Craig saw the crowd, the culture that did not know Christ and was frustrated with them. He was angry at them, so he taught them. I know this, compassionless teaching, teaching that comes from anger or frustration is never going to end very well for me. And it's never going to be very effective. And it's not going to end well for you either. And it's not going to be very effective in your life. So what does it mean then for us and for our teaching? I think it means this, that at least before we teach a Christless culture, before we teach those who are seeking to become faithful disciples, even those in our own family, but perhaps they're failing before we teach anyone, we pray. We pray, Lord, give me a heart of compassion. And then we remember as well that we were once in that crowd, right? The crowd that so frustrates and angers us. We were part of it. Scripture says we were once separated without Christ, without hope, and without God in this world. But Christ had compassion on us, didn't he? Christ had compassion on you. He opened our eyes to see our need for Him. He opened our hearts to understand His truth, to see our lostness and to see our great need for Him. How compassionate is Christ to us? So teaching with compassion. 
also means that we'll remember our own struggles. If you were here last week, you recall that I skipped teaching and went to obedience. That's because our own journey and obedience, our own struggles with obeying all that Christ has commanded, it gives us compassion for people who are on that journey with us, compassion for people who may be at the very beginning of that journey, compassion for people who have not yet even begun it. Our tale will be the tale of two teachers if we are not compassionate in our teaching. We'll find ourselves the center of it. And we'll use people for our own gain and our own glory. And we'll seek to be the hero in the story. And our pride will guide our teaching and the glory that we crave from it. But not so with our teacher Jesus. He didn't use other people for his own glory. He laid aside the glory that already belonged to him, the glory to which he could have clung with an iron grip, but he did not. He, he released it. He let it go. He didn't care what others thought of him. He did not use other people for his own ego. Instead, with great compassion, he made others the center of his teaching so that he might rescue them from their lostness. Oh, May we be like Christ in our teaching. May compassion for others compel us to teach them Christ's truth. May we not worry about our reputations. Jesus made himself nothing. May we not care what our children or others think of our parenting if in compassion we seek to children to teach our children to obey all that Christ has commanded them. May we not care about our reputation in the workplace or neighborhood or even the church if we in compassion seek to teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. May our desire be to see people know the truth. To see people live out the truth of God. May our desire be to see them flourish in this life. And may that desire cause us to compassionately teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we simply ask for this. Give us hearts of compassion. Cause us to be people who listen as you speak to us before we speak to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.